Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Telegraph Herald for Wednesday, January 25th. I am your narrator, Peter Welch, and you are listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Information Services Network for the Blind and the Disabled. All right, let's uh, take a quick look here at the, uh, the front page. Q Casino eyes 75 million revamp. Plans include a family entertainment area. Officials on Tuesday unveiled plans for an at least $75 million renovation to transform one of Dubuque's casinos and add new amenities to the facility. Officials with Q Casino shared a five-phase plan to renovate the facility. The total project is expected to cost $75 million to $80 million and should be completed by 2025. The plans include remodeling the main casino area, adding a family entertainment area, constructing a new hotel tower, and upgrading the facility's facade. It's been 15 years since we've undergone any significant upgrade, said Stacy Kansky, chief commercial officer for Q Casino and DRA, the nonprofit license holder for Dubuque's casinos. We want to make this a better experience for our guests. Q Casino and DRA officials met with the Telegraph Herald to share the plans ahead of Tuesday's DRA board meeting. At the meeting, the board members unanimously approved the project as a whole, as well as approved work to begin on its first phase. DRA board members will have to approve work on each of the five phases before they begin. This is something that we've been talking about for a long time now, and we've done our due diligence. And all of the planning, said Kevin Lynch, who served his last day as the chair of the DRA board on tu at Tuesday's meeting. It's an exciting project for the entire community. And I, for one, am really excited to get the ball rolling. Conlin Construction Company will be the general contractor on the project. Brian Rakestraw, chief operating and finance officer for DRA and Q Casino, said the casino officials are working with Midwest One Bank on financing, which is not dependent on grant funding. The DRA also plans to continue to contribute to both its grant program and the city of Dubuque at the same rate as it does today. The DRA's lease agreement with the city splits the DRA annual dis distribution evenly among the city, the local charities, and improvements to Chaplin Schmidt Island. Any impact should be minimal, and by reinvesting in the property, we expect to increase overall gaming and entertainment from new and return visitors, resulting in revenue growth, Kansky said in an email. Alex Dixon, president and CEO of Q Casino and DRA, will present to the Iowa Racing Gaming Commission on Thursday, January 26th, to seek approval of the first phase of the renovation project. This is an exciting project for Q Casino, DRA, and the city of Dubuque. So we look forward to making our presentation to the Iowa Racing and Gaming Commission and getting final approval of our plans, Dixon said in a press release related to the project announcement. A lot of effort has gone into getting us to this point, but we have planned carefully and have done our homework.
All right, let's take a look at Des Moines here. Reynolds signs private school scholarship bill. The education savings account measure has passed with only Republican support. In Des Moines, any Iowa student who wants to attend a private school could use public money to pay for tuition or other expenses under a plan passed Tuesday by the legislature and quickly signed into law by Governor Kim Reynolds, making the state the third to pass a measure that allows such spending with few restrictions. Republicans approved of the bill, despite objections from Democrats and others who argued that the new education savings account would lead to reduced funding for public schools. Reynolds, who made the private school funding measure one of her top priorities after failing to pass similar but less expansive proposals twice before, signed the bill at an event backed by supporters and students. For the first time, we will fund students instead of a system, a decisive step in ensuring that every child in Iowa can receive the best education possible, Reynolds said in a statement. Parents, not the government can now choose the education setting best suited to their child, regardless of their income or zip code. The bill passed the State House late Monday and the Senate early Tuesday with only Republican support. With passage of the bill, Iowa joins West Virginia and Arizona as states that provide taxpayer money to help families pay student tuition and other expenses at private schools with a few limits, according to the National Conference of State Legislatures. Other states offer such help, but only to families that meet requirements for income, disabilities, or other factors. Legislatures also are considering similar program in other states, including Florida, Nebraska, Virginia, and Utah. Iowa Republicans who hold wide majorities in the House and Senate approved the bill remarkably quickly with final passage coming in the third week of the legislative session. A nonpartisan analyst by the Legislative Services Agency estimated that the, mer that the measure would cost $344.9 million annually in its fourth year, after it is fully implemented. The agency noted its assessment came without knowing some details, including the cost of paying a business to oversee the program. The governor and Republican legislations have argued that they support the state's public schools, but that all families should be able to send their children to private school, not just those wealthy enough to afford the tuition. They note that if students opt for private school, their $7,600 in per-pupil support would follow them to the private institution, but the plan would send $1,200 to the public school districts where the student resides. The public funding also would be available to students already enrolled in private schools with family income requirements phasing out over three years. During debate Monday night, Representative Stephen Holt, Republican of Denison, said that Democrats were overstating what the private school funding would mean to public schools. If, in fact, a huge number of students were to leave public schools to attend accredited private schools, then it becomes profoundly clear just how important it was that we gave parents greater choice since such an exodus would lay bare the reality is that these schools were not meeting the needs of our students, Crawford went on to say. All right, let's see what's going on here in Dubuque. City to update waste treatment program. 
A new industrial pretreatment coordinator position will monitor local businesses' handling of potentially harmful substances. City of Dubuque staff are updating a program used to protect the city's wastewater treatment plant from potentially harmful waste created by local industrial businesses. Dubuque City Council members recently approved the creation of new industrial pre-treatment coordinated positions to lead the city's pre-treatment program with assistance from the city's environmental coordinator. The program created in 1983, works to prevent industrial businesses from discharging contaminants uh, that could damage or interfere with the city's wastewater treatment process, such as by eroding sewer lines or causing blockages. Dubuque Water and Resource Recovery Center Manager William O'Brien said creation of the new position was one of several recommendations made by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency after conducted an audit of the program in November and determined that improvements were needed. He said that the new position will cost the city about $100,000 annually. O'Brien said that 15 businesses and organizations in the city are identified as either significant or categorical industrial users and are required to participate in the program. The businesses are Automotive and Industrial Hardware, American Protein Corps, Incorporated, ADM Artco Fleeting Services, Dubuque Stamping and Manufacturing Incorporated, Dubuque Metropolitan Area Solid Waste Agency, Anderson Windows and Doors, Gies Manufacturing, Key City Plating, Clower Manufacturing Company, People's Natural Gas, Prairie Farms Progressive Processing LLC, RE, that's R I E, Coatings, Resolote Incorporated, and Simons Pet Food Incorporated. Through the, pro- through the program, companies are required to implement practices that reduce the concentrations of potentially harmful material in their wastewater before it is sent to the Water and Resources Recovery Center, O'Brien says. The city is responsible for monitoring and inspecting these businesses to ensure that they are following the pre-treatment program. While the new pretreatment coordinator will help run the program, O'Brien said that the new position also is anticipated to reduce the workload of the environmental coordinator position at the Water and Resource Recovery Center. The environmental coordinator currently manages the pretreatment program and the city's fats, oils, and grease program. Since the position was created in 2015, two employees have resigned from it, and it also spent about two years unfilled. The hope is by reducing the workload there, we will not see as much turnover with that position, O'Brien concluded. Okay, time to turn the page here. Let's now take a look at the Dubuque and Tri-State area. Authorities are releasing updated timeline for a missing man. Ronald Henry, age 34, was last seen in the early morning hours of December 5th in uh, Platteville, in Platte, or I should say Platteville, Wisconsin. Authorities on Tuesday released additional information about the ongoing search for a man who went missing from rural Platteville. The Grant County Sheriff's Department released an updated timeline on efforts to locate Ronald Henry, age 34, who was reported missing on the 7th of December. The update stated that the investigation is ongoing, although it warned the department it's beginning to run out of credible leads. Since Henry's disappearance, 
The release states the department has conducted several ground and aerial searches, completed nearly 50 interviews, and combed through hours of security and surveillance footage. The updated time timelines states that Henry arrived in Platteville on December 1st to stay and work for a few weeks to obtain money for a sporting event he had won tickets to. It was last seen around 3 a.m. on the 5th of December after returning from a social gathering to the home he was staying at on Condry Road. The release states that he was gone by 7.30 a.m., but that others at the home thought he had left to meet friends in the area. He was not reported missing until the 7th of December after friends and family could not get in touch with him. A search then was immediately conducted in the area. He was last seen using officers on foot and a drone with thermal capabilities. The release also outlines several follow-up searches that have taken place in the nearly two months since, which cumulatively covered more than 2,500 acres. As previously reported, those searches were done using canines, helicopters, and drones in collaboration with surrounding and statewide emergency departments. The department also sought help from the State Division of Criminal Investigation. Anyone with information about the case should call the Sheriff's Department at 608-723-2157 or anonymously submit a tip through the Grant County Crime Stoppers. And you can reach them there at 800-789-6600. News in brief. Police. One injured in Dubuque crash, excessive speed of factor. Police said that one person was injured on Monday in Dubuque in a two-vehicle crash in which excessive speeding was believed to play a role. Brian P. Atchison, age 50, of Dubuque, was injured but declined medical treatment on the scene, according to a crash report. The crash occurred at about 12.25 p.m. on Monday at the intersection of Jackson and East 17th Streets. The report states that Atkinson was westbound on East 17th and stopped at a stop sign, while Michael L. Ashford, age 16, of Dubuque, was northbound on Jackson and had the right of way. Ashford uh, reported that Atkinson pulled out in front of him. Atkinson advised that he thought he could make the intersection. The report states Atkinson advised Ashford had to have been speeding to cover that distance so quickly. Ashford's vehicle was pushed off the road, hitting a street sign, and coming to a stop near 1795 Jackson Street, the report states, due to how far Jack Ashford rather came to rest compared to the initial impact of the accident. Excessive speed is believed to be a factor in this accident, the report goes on to say. Ashford later told police that he was traveling around 40 miles an hour in a 25-mile-per-hour zone, the report states. Ashford was cited with not having a valid driver's license, failure to provide proof of financial liability and speeding. Anderson was cited with failure to obey a stop sign, yield right-of-way, failure to provide proof of financial ability, liability, and not having a valid driver's license. City of Dubuque seeks suggestions for remaining former Paya de Zorks Park. Officials looking to remain, a, or rather to rename, I should say, a Dubuque Park seek suggestions from citizens. The park located at 16th Street and Kerper Boulevard was named for Dubuque's former sister, city of Paya de Zork, Russia. 
In July, the sister, the, the sister city co um, committee of travel Dubuque agreed to suspend the city status with the name, citing Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And in August, city council members agreed to remove any signage relating to the name and directed city staff to determine a process for renaming the park. A press release noted that the per city policy, the park's new name should generally fall into one of the following categories. Historic events, people and places, individuals living or non-living or groups who have provided exceptional service to the city of Dubuque's park system, recreational facilities or the city as a whole. Major donations, including land or other contributions for the improvement and or expansion of the park or trail systems. Geographic locations, such as naming and relationship to an adjacent streets. Suggestions can be submitted at www.cityofdubuque.org forward slash parks or drop off uh, or mailed to Leisure Services Department. Attention, Mar Marie, that's M. A-R-I-E, where, W-A-R-E, at 115 Central, Central Avenue, Dubuque, Iowa, 52001. TH seeks stories of families impacted by Iowa's new school choice law. The Telegraph Herald is working on a story about the local impacts of a newly signed law that will provide public funds to pay for tuition at private schools in Iowa, including how the legislation will affect family, families' decisions to send their children to private schools. Will having access to an education savings account impact where you send your kids to school? Are you considering making a switch to private education? We would like to talk to you. Please contact reporter Elizabeth Kelsey at Elizabeth. Dot Kelsey, that's K E L S E Y, at the media, that's T H M E D I A, dot com by Thursday, January 26, to share your story. Okay, let's see what else is going on here in Dubuque. Casinos are reporting a decrease in gaming revenue. Dubuque's casino saw strong gaming revenue numbers for last year, though those totals were down slightly compared to 2021. Diamond Joe Casino and Q Casino collectively generated $125.98 million in gaming revenue in 2022, down 3.6% from 2021's total of $130.7 million. However, that total was still 4.5% above gaming revenue reported in 2019, which saw a total of $120.6 million in gaming revenue. Gaming officials generally have been using 2019 as the next most recent year for comparison as the COVID-19 pandemic significantly impacted 2020 figures. Diamond Joe reported $74.2 million in gaming revenue last year compared to $76.8 million in 2021. Q Casino reported gaming revenue of $51.7 million in 2022, compared to its 2021 total of $53.9 million. Officials for the DRA, the nonprofit license holder for Dubuque Casinos, also shared Tuesday that the DRA's total distribution to the city of Dubuque for 2022 totaled $7.5 million, up 33% from the prior year. 
Officials discussed financial figures for the year and took a look back at 2022 during a meeting of DRA board members. We are very pleased with the results as we close out year 2022, said Brian Rakestraw, Chief Operating and Finance Officer for DRA and Q Casino. Gross gaming revenue was down in December and Mother Nature impacted the month. In December, both Dubuque Casinos reported a combination of $9.7 million in gaming revenue, down 6.2% compared to December 2021. Q Casino reported $3.9 million in gaming revenue last month, a 9.6% decrease compared to December 2021. Diamond Joe's revenue dropped 3.8% from about $6 million in December of 2021 to $5.7 million in December 2022. Kathy Buer, Director of Strategic Philanthropy in Chaplin Schmidt Island Development with the DRA, also shared some highlights of the DRA's accomplishments over the past 12 months. In addition to working with the City of Dubuque on Schmidt Island development projects, Buer said that the DRA refreshed its brand and made changes to its grant program. Last year, grant applicants for the first time could apply for either core grants, requests for up to $50,000, or mission grants, requests of $50,000 to $500,000. A total of $3.13 million was given in grant funding in 2022. We really focused on the grant program and aligned it with the mission of the DRA and other local initiatives, Muir says. We challenged our grant applicants to focus their grants on population attraction. The grant structure will remain in place this year. Mission grant applications will be open April 9th through the 24th, and core grant applications will be open May 8th through the 19th. Let's see what else is happening in Dubuque. Two families were displaced by a, a fire in Dubuque. Uh, no injuries were reported. Two families were displaced by fire at a Dubuque residence on Tuesday afternoon. Though no injuries were reported, firefighters were displaced, or I should say dispatched, excuse me, dispatched at 3.53 p.m. to 423 Loris Boulevard, where there was a fire on the third floor of the three-story multifamily residence. Dubuque Fire Department Captain Jason Lucan said that the firefighters were able to get the blaze contained by 4.01 p.m. Crews helped evacuate five occupants from the first and second floors of the building, and no injuries were reported, a press release states. The fire was contained to one room on the third floor of the structure, Lucan said. However, the fire and smoke damage rendered the third floor temporarily unlivable for the family of two adults and four children who reside there. Additionally, two adults living on the second floor temporarily were displaced due to water damage. Lucan said in a total damage estimate was not yet available. We tried to put tarps out, but there was some water damage to the second floor, he said. They will at least have to sleep somewhere else for one night. Lucan said that the American Red Cross had been notified of the displaced families. A family living on the first floor of the building was not displaced. The cause of the blaze remains under investigation, though it is believed to be accidental at this time, the release states. Okay, now let's take a look at the other view. This is a uh, column that is written uh, by uh, various um, reporters. This one is, was written by Trudy Rubin of the Philadelphia Inquirer, and it's titled, Putin Must Be Prevented from Enabling Prison Death at, at Navalny. 
Western allies are finally realizing that the Ukraine war won't end until Putin's dreams of conquest are decisively defeated on the battlefield. But that reality is forcing strate uh, strategists rather, to contemplate what might happen to inside Russia if Putin can no longer hide his failures. Speculation ranges from his overthrow by associates to Kremlin collapse to a surviving sullen Putin. Yet one thing is certain, if there's any small chance that a Russian defeat might open the door to positive political change, Putin must be prevented from murdering the country's leading opposition politician, Alexei Navalny, whose health is sharply deteriorating as he is badly mistreated in prison. He's being denied adequate medical care, family visits, or packages, and kept mainly in harsh, solitary confinement where he's not allowed to lie down from 5 a.m. to 10 p.m., even though he is in severe pain with a fever. 500 brave Russian doctors, nearly all of them still living inside their country, recently signed an open letter to Putin demanding that the prison authorities stop abusing Navalny and, pre and preventing his access to vital medication. So it's important to the White House, European leaders, and human rights organizations to keep the spotlight on Navalny on, in his plight and raise it at any meetings with Russian officials, especially Putin. They must stress that Putin will be held directly responsible should Navalny die in jail. Putin detests the charismatic, handsome 44-year-old Navalny, who stands in stark contrast to the 70-year-old, puffy-faced autocrat, isolated from the public. The aging Kremlin leader no doubt fears that Navalny's huge following across Russia amassed even though his name is rarely, if ever, uttered on state-controlled TV channels. Navalny has further enraged the Kremlin boss by opposing the war in Ukraine, although he has supported a referendum in Crimea. Yet Navalny's history shows what was once possible in Russian politics and hints at what might someday be possible again. The opposition activists gained a wide following among young people his long crusade against corruption among Kremlin leaders and cronies and his use of social media and humor to expose them. When he ran for mayor of Moscow in 2013, using 20,000 young volunteers, he won more than 27% of the vote despite predictions he'd get only about 6%. If it had been a fair election, his count would no doubt have been far higher. Navalny was fascinated at how U.S. politicians brought their campaigns in the public, says Yevgenia Olbats, a leading Russian scholar, independent journalist, and a close friend of Navalny's. When he ran for mayor, he watched the HBO series The Wire and learned from the race for Baltimore mayor how to do it, she told me. When I visited Navalny's sleek, spare office in 2018, far from Moscow's city center, he told me, our main tool became YouTube because it attracts more younger people, blue-collar youth, not hipsters, youth, who see no future. The brilliant 2017 YouTube video put out by his anti-corruption foundation on then-Prime Minister Dmitry Medelev Ill-gotten missions, yachts, and vineyards drew 27 million views and inspired tens of thousands of demonstrators in cities, towns, and villages. A 2021 video about Putin's sprawling secret palace complete with drone footage garnered 92 million views and was issued even though Navalny was in jail. 
In 2017, when he tried to run for president, Lavalny was the only Russian politician who toured nearly every region, a unique strategy for Russian leaders who normally give stiff formal presentations in limited locations. Green dye was thrown in Navalny's face after a rally, nearly blinding one eye. He was banned from running for president. His brother was imprisoned as a hostage, and he was repeated, uh, repeatedly jailed. Yet he continued building his mass movement. When I asked him in 2018 if he feared he might be killed, he retorted, right, now the cost is higher than they want, but added with a gr grim humor, maybe they're still saving this tool. That vicious tool was finally applied in 2020 when Russian intelligence agents tried to poison Navalny uh, with a banned nerve agent after he addressed a rally in Siberia. Miraculously, a private plane sent from Germany managed to evacuate him to Berlin, where his life was saved, and he underwent months of retreatment. He returned to Russia in January 2021 as soon as he was well enough to travel. He was jailed on bogus charges as soon as he reached the Moscow airport, and his supporters believe he's unlikely to be released while Putin remains in power. Why did he return? I asked all bats, who managed to exchange messages with Alvani in prison. He knew he could not be a Russian politician who asked people to protest if he was living in the luxury of Germany. She answered quickly, Novani's team continues to work from exile in Lithuania, and he manages to smuggle tweets out. He's allowed to send censored mail and receive some books. He recently wrote Albats that he was reading the memoir of imprisoned Soviet dissident Antoly Mar Marchenko and was impressed at how the Russian gulag for political prisoners hadn't changed since 1962, except for plumbing and no more official starvation. Given the consequences of a failing war, however, Albats is worried that Putin may envision a worse fate for his enemy in jail. Putin will try to break him, she said. Western leaders must make clear to Putin that he will be held responsible for Navalny's safety, which is a pr top priority for them. They should also attempt to bargain Navalny out of Russia before anything worse happens. The odds against him are harsh, yet Navalny remains the best hope for Russia after the Ukraine war ends. And I would like to remind you that you are listening to the reading of the Telegraph Herald newspaper. And this is January 25th. It is a Wednesday. And I'm your narrator, Peter Welch. And you are listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Information Services Network for the Blind and the Disabled. And yes, we do have some obituary news. Let's take a look at that right now. Barrett Barry Blair, age 75, of Ashbury, passed on 13th of January at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. Farewell toast visitation will be from 9.30 a.m. to 11.45 a.m. Saturday, January 28th at the Elkhoff, Siegert, and Casper Funeral Home and Crematory at 2659 JFK Road in Dubuque. Memorial service will be uh, immediately follow at 12 o'clock p.m. Military honors will be accorded by the Dubuque Marine Corps. Brian Kathman, age 56, of Lancaster, Wisconsin, passed away early on Sunday morning on the 22nd of January at Grant Regional Health Center in Lancaster, surrounded by its family and friends. Mass of Christian burial will be at 11 a.m. on Friday, January 27th at St. Clement's Church 
at 135 South Washington Street in Lancaster, Wisconsin. Poor Porky's wish there will be no visitation. His request was to have a funeral mass and blessing of his cremated remains. Leonard Funeral Home and Crematory at 2595 Rockdale Road, Dubuque, in Iowa, is assisting the family. Kenneth J. Link, age 82, passed away on the 21st of January. Complications of a stroke at the University of Iowa hospitals and clinics surrounded by his loving family. Visitation will be from 9 to 11 o'clock on Friday, the 27th of January at Leonard Funeral Home and Crematory at 2595 Rockdale Road. A funeral service will be held at 11 a.m. at the funeral home with Steve Garner officiating. Burial to follow at Linwood Cemetery with military honors by the Iowa Army National Guard and presentation of the four fives by the Dubuque Fire Department. Roger E. Quaid uh, passed away on the 16th of January. The family will welcome and appreciate visitors on Saturday, 28th of January from 10 uh, to 1.45 p.m. at Leonard Funeral Home and Crematory at 2595 Rockdale Road in Dubuque. Funeral services will follow at 2 p.m. at the Emanuel Congressional UCC at 1795 Jackson Street, Dubuque, with Reverend Diane Grace officiating. Committal prayer and military honors by American Legion Post 6 and the Iowa Army National Guard will immediately follow at Mount Olivet Cemetery. For online condolences and further obituary information, visit LeonardFuneralHome.com. And also John W. Bayer, age 61, of Iowa City, uh, has passed away. And Lensing Funeral and Cremation Services of Iowa City are handling all the arrangements. A massive Christian burial will be held on Monday on the 30th of January at 11 a.m. at the Newman Catholic Student Center. Private interment will take place at a future date. Marion Braid Kelly, age 84, uh, passed away on the 21st of January at Stonehill Care Center. Uh, funeral home service will be held at 12 p.m. on Thursday, the 26th of January at Leonard Funeral Home and Crematory at 2595 Rockdale Road. Friends and family may visit from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. at the funeral home and burial will take place at Mount Calvary Cemetery in Dubuque. Okay, now let's turn to something I think we all love to talk about, food, in the lifestyle section of the paper. And we've got a couple things here. Let's take a look first at lifestyle in short. Pizza Hut brings back oversized big New Yorker pizza. And if you've ever been to New York, uh, hopefully you tried New York pizza. And uh, let me tell you, uh, from someone who personally knows, it's the best. It's wonderful. All right, let's take a look here and see what it says. On the 1st of February in 2023, just in time for you to ditch your New Year's resolution, Pizza Hut will start selling its 16-inch pie, the Big New Yorker. The extra-large pizza, as the Plano, Texas-based company describes it, comes with six oversized foldable slices and can be customized beyond the traditional double pepperoni order. The pizza was introduced in 1999, then retired at the end of the year, says the spokeswoman. In return, arrives just before the Super Bowl 
On the 12th of February, the Super Bowl is one of Pizza Hut's biggest days of the year. And Pizza Hut's chief marketing officer, Lindsay Morgan, said it's a perfect time to unleash the big New Yorker in a big way right before the big game. The pizza is notably 30% larger than Pizza Hut's large-sized pizza. So big is appropriate here. More than five years ago, Pizza Hut fans created a change.org petition begging for their big pizza back. And about 3,500 people signed it in those years. A modest Reddit thread with a dozen or so comments also brings up the question of a comeback. Note, the 2023 version of the BNY will be made with different crust and cheese. The Pizza Hut team that redid the pie is using a New Yorker-style crust recipe alongside sweet marinara, cupped pepperoni, and Parmesan oregano seasonings on top. Oh, boy. I'm getting hungry here. Dr. Pepper flavored peeps arrive soon at Walmart. Dr. Pepper peeps marshmallows. We've never seen those on an, in an Easter basket before. Peeps brand partnered with the iconic Texas Soda Company to formulate a marshmallow meant to mimic the flavors of Dr. Pepper. The secret soda recipe was not shared, a spokesperson for Dr. Pepper confirms. A Peeps partnership was natural for parent company Keurig Dr. Pepper because last year they jointly released original donut shop coffee flavored Peeps marshmallows modeled after a flavor of K-Cups pods created by, by Curing. Plus, Peeps likes to deliver the unexpected, a spokesperson for the company said. Other Peeps flavored in 2023 include sparkly wild berry, cotton candy, hot tamales, party cake, and sour watermelon. Peeps' parent company, Just Born Quality Confections, also owns Hot Tamales, Mike and Ike, Goldenberg's Peanut Chews. The Dr. New Dr. Pepper Peeps will be sold exclusively at Walmart nationwide and are expected to go on sale after Valentine's Day. Meet Raspberry Rally, the newest Girl Scouts cookie. Oh, that's right. Boy, that reminds me, right? The uh, Girl Scout cookies are going to be sold again pretty soon. And it says here, to celebrate the kickoff of Girl Scout cookie season, the organization has announced the release of a brand new cookie. While they look a little bit like the classic Thin Mints, the new Raspberry Rally cookies are filled instead with raspberry goodness. And they're only available online. So, Raspberry Rally is an online exclusive cookie that can only be purchased online and shipped directly to your home. Be sure to find a Girl Scout you know to place your order, suggested the Girl Scouts website. Beginning the 27th of February, cookie lovers will be able to purchase cookies to be shipped directly to their homes by entering their zip code into the Girl Scout cookie finder. This link can also be used to find a local booth to purchase cookies and or to donate cookies for local community causes. All right. Now, let's see. Oh, goody. Look at this one. This is called a quick fix. This is shrimp sliders. Feature flavorful sauce. And who doesn't love shrimp? Shrimp sautéed in garlicky butter fills these little mini burger rolls. 
a sauce of mayonnaise, mustard, scallions, and some Old Bay seasoning is spread on the rolls. Old Bay is a blend of herbs and spices, usually celery salt, red and black pepper, and paprika. It's mostly used to season shellfish. For the potato salad, I doctored up deli uh, potato salad with some sliced carrots and chopped chives. And some helpful hints here, you can substitute the Old Bay seasoning with some paprika, salt, or pepper. And you can use any type of lettuce that you want by peeled or deveined shrimp. The countdown, make the potato salad and set aside. Mix the mayonnaise, scallions, and mustard together in a small bowl and set aside. Toast the slider rolls. Saute the shrimp and assemble the sliders. Shopping list, here's what you need to buy. One jar of reduced fat mayonnaise. One jar of Dijon mustard. One bunch of scallions. One head of lettuce. One container of Old Bay seasoning. One package of whole wheat slider rolls. Three quarter pound of peeled and deveined shrimp. One small container of deli potato salad. One package of carrots. And one bunch, and good heavens, the... <laughs> I wanted to continue reading the article here. I see that it just has ended. I'm sorry that there isn't more here. Uh, but I think you probably get the idea pretty much of what you need to make this delicious uh, meal. And again, I apologize, but for some reason, the uh, it did not continue from there on. I think you got most of the ingredients there to really make a delicious uh, sandwich. Okay, how about, do you like spicy food? Burning up? Well, if not, it's possible to increase your tolerance. That's right. Jody Denton, a self-described chili head, ran an experiment with two young daughters, Anna and Olivia. As they grew up, he cooked their meals just a little bit spicier than they wanted. They'd complain, he'd apologize, but the very next meal, he'd bring the heat. Years later, his daughter's Olivia, now 19, came home from college for the summer. Sitting at the dinner table with her dad, she asked him, Is it possible you've always been making my food a little spicier than I wanted? Denton came clean. That's so cool, she said, him shocked, of her friend group at school. She was the only one who could handle spicy food. Denton fell in love with spicy food at an early age and now develops spicy snacks for Frito-Lay as a lead research chef for PepsiCo Global Foods. From Reaper Roulette Pizza to Flamin' Hot Cheetos, the characteristic heat of spicy foods is in countless meals and cuisines, and sometimes it's tangy, sweet, and spicy. Other times it's a nuclear sensation that can set your whole mouth on fire. Denton and other chefs from local restaurants say that Dallas-Fort Worth foodies have grown more adventurous over the years going outside their comfort zones to try spicier dishes. So we decided to uncover the science behind the spice and find out how Dallas-area restaurants incorporate that characteristic heat into their dishes and answer the burning question, is it possible to build a tolerance to spicy food? What makes food spicy? Well, when we sip something hot in temperature, like super milk, nerve endings in our mouths activate and send a message to our brains. This is hot. Don't burn yourself. A similar process happens with spicy food. When we bite into a spicy pepper, for example, chemicals called capsaicinoids activate the same nerve endings in our mouths, producing a heat sensation even though we aren't eating something hot in temperature. In other 
words. The capsaicinoids trick our brains into thinking something is burning in our mouths, even though it's not. Capsaicin is the most pungent of the capsaicinoids in a pepper, said Alice Nolden, an assistant professor in the University of Massachusetts Amherst Department of Food Science. In graduate school, Nolden led an experiment that investigated whether beverages like water, milk, Kool-Aid, and cola were better or worse at alleviating the burn from spicy foods. She, she found that milk worked the best, which is not terribly surprising, I guess. Not all spicy foods are created equal either, she says. So you have to ask yourself a question. Can I build my spice tolerance? Have Dallas restaurants seen customers increase their spice tolerance over the years? 1,000%, apparently. Uh, people might be traveling more, interacting with different cultures and cuisines that help them gain an appreciation for a spicy food. I know it did for me. Every time I go to Mexico, there's a salsa or a chili powder or something on the table. It's definitely helped me appreciate it much more, says Quinones Pittman. Having the restaurants here going in the past 18, going on, I should say, in the past 18 years, I've actually seen a progression of our clients being able to increase their spice level, she goes on to say, from the first few days that we opened and the first couple of years. Shah, also uh, an expert in this food, says that it's been exciting to see guests venture outside their comfort zones. Food scientist Nolden and the food we eat when we're younger can help develop our preferences when we are older. But for people who didn't grow up eating spicy food, not all hope is lost. Repeated exposure to capsaicin, the chemical that makes some uh, peppers spicy, can increase our tolerance. If you're an adult and you're choosing what you're eating and you start incorporating spicy food into your diet, you can definitely learn to tolerate, tolerate spicy foods, Nolden concluded. Now, let's take a look at Michael Rosen's uh, weekly column here. Um, New Year's resolutions reveal a lot about people's personality. Blake Shelton says that he wants to become a better gardener in 2023. Conan O'Brien says that he wished to gain a lot of abdominal weight so he won't be disappointed in, in himself. And Kathy Griffith once resolved to off offend rather more people than I did this year. Whatever you vowed on New Year's Eve, one thing is absolutely true. No matter what the calendar says, it's never too late to resolve to make positive life-enhancing changes. That's what I told Barbara Walters back in 1999 when I appeared on 2020. I said, it's only too late when they start to lower you six feet under. Now, during the beginning of 2023, I can't think of any resolution that's more important than having your family resolve to help reverse the tsunami of adolescent type 2 diabetes that's headed our way. A new Centers for Disease Control and Prevention uh, funded study says that by 2060, 220,000 kids under age 20, that's eight times as many as today, could have type 2 diabetes and be facing its life-shortening health challenges. So look, make a resolution to mind your P's and Q's, and you'll help your children and their children avoid premature heart, kidney, and nerve disease. The P's, well, that's P-O-S-S-E, posse, and purpose. Build a strong social network that offers your kids emotional stability 
and instill in kids a commitment to helping others and finding fulfillment in daily activities. The cues? Quality nutrition, a plant-based, minimally processed diet, and a quantity of physical activity at least 300 minutes a week. All right, let's now uh, turn to another uh, section of the paper. Uh, this is for the record uh, the, for, for the nation and the world. New gene therapy goes directly to the brain. Promising treatment is allowing outcomes that doctors previously thought would be impossible. When Riley Ann Poulin was a year old, she didn't crawl or babble like other kids her age. A rare genetic disorder kept her from even lifting her head. Her parents took turns holding her upright at night just so that she could breathe comfortably and sleep. Three months later, doctors delivered gene therapy directly to her brain. Now, the four-year-old is walking, running, swimming, reading, and riding horses, just doing so many amazing things that doctors once said were impossible, said her mother, Judy Wee. Rylan Ann, who lives with her family in Bangkok, was among the first to benefit from a new way of delivering gene therapy, attacking diseases inside the brain that experts believe hold great promise for treating a host of brain disorders. Her treatment recently became the first brain-delivered gene therapy after its approval in Europe and the United Kingdom for AADC deficiency, a disorder that interferes with the way cells in the nervous system communicate. New Jersey drug maker PTC Therapeutics plans to seek U.S. approval this year. Meanwhile, about 30 U.S. students testing gene therapy to the brain for various disorders are ongoing according to the National Institutes of Health, one led by Dr. Christoph Bankowitz at Ohio State University and also targets AADC deficiency. Other test treatments for disorders such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and Huntington's. Challenges remain, especially with diseases caused by more than a single gene. But scientists say that the evidence supporting this approach is mounting, opening a new frontier in the fight against disorders afflicting our most complex and mysterious organ. There's a lot of exciting times ahead of us, says Bankowitz, a neurosurgeon. We're seeing some breakthroughs. The most dramatic of those breakthroughs involve Riley Ann's disease which is caused by mutations in a gene needed for an enzyme that helps make neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin, the body's chemical messengers. The one-time treatment delivers a working version of the gene. At around three months old, Raleigh Ann began having spells her parents thought were seizures. Her eyes would roll back and her muscles would tense. Fluid sometimes got into her lungs after feeding, sending her to the emergency room. Doctors thought she might have epilepsy or cerebral palsy. Around that time, Wee's brother sent her a Facebook uh, post about a child in Taiwan with AADC deficiency. The extremely rare disorder afflict, afflicts about 135 children worldwide, many in that country. Wee, who was born in Taiwan, and her husband Richard Poulin III sought out a doctor there who correctly diagnosed Riley Ann. They learned that she could qualify for a gene therapy clinical trial in Taiwan. Though they were nervous about the prospect of brain surgery, they realized she likely wouldn't live past four years of age without it. Riley Ann had the treatment at 18 months old on November 13th in 2019 
which her parents have dubbed her reborn day. Doctors delivered it during minimally invasive surgery with a thin tube through a hole in the skull. A harmless virus carried in a functioning version of the gene. It gets put into the brain cells, and then the brain cells make the neurotransmitter dopamine, said Stuart Peltz of CEO PTC Therapeutics. Company officials said all patients in their clinical trials showed motor and cognitive improvements. Some of them, Peltz said, could eventually stand and walk and continue getting better over time. Isn't that something, the amazing world that we live in with modern medicine? All right, what else is going on here? Yellen visits Zambian farm to showcase Africa's ag potential. In Zambia, U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen traveled from a small farm on a rural red clay road to a Raymond noodle manufacturing plant in Zambia's bustling capital of Lusaka on Tuesday to showcase Africa's potential to help solve the world's problems of food shortages. Yellen, midway through a 10-day tour of Africa, devoted her day to highlighting the agricultural investment potential of underdeveloped African nations, especially as Russia's invasion of Ukraine has exacerbated worldwide hunger and the cost of food. As we tackle acute needs now, we must also take a longer view and scale up investment in long-term food system resilience. Africa is a perfect example of these dual challenges, Yellen said. In Changui, a village an hour outside of Luska, she stood at her signature podium, surrounded by lush green fields of corn and with chickens grazing nearby. The continent's potential is evident in one statistic. Africa has 60% of the world's uncultivated arable land. We want to advance a future where Africa participates more fully in global food and fertilizer markets and supply chains, Yellen goes on to say, as farmers, mostly women, wearing brightly colored wax cloth dresses listened. They told Yellen stories of how they've sustained their communities by sharing goats to mate, to build a sustainable livestock supply, and by developing collective savings groups and silos for grain. In Zambia, roughly 2 million people face acute food insecurity. More than half the population lives below the poverty line, and nearly half of the population is unable to meet minimum caloric intake needs. It's a continent that faces acute food needs, Yellen goes on to say, but it is one that also has the potential not only to feed itself, but also to help feed the world if the right steps are taken. And lastly, and briefly, in Washington, President Joe Biden uh, hosted Democratic congressional leaders on Tuesday at the White House as they face a new era, a divided government in Washington, staring down a debt ceiling crisis and running up against a new House Republican majority eager for confrontation. The president and the top Democrats used the private gatherings in the Roosevelt Room to project a unified front against what Biden called extreme Republican economic plans. Rather than enter into negotiations with House Republicans to cut spending in exchange for raising the debt ceiling, the White House has stressed repeatedly that it wants Congress to lift the borrowing capacity without conditions. Democrats said it's up to Republicans to go public about what budget cuts the new House majority wants to make. And that does the reading here today of the Telegraph Herald on Wednesday, the 25th of January. And I am your narrator, Peter Welch, 
And you've been listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Information Services Network for the Blind and the Disabled. Thank you for listening. We'll talk again soon. Bye now. Bye now.